Welcome to the Africa Arena podcast, the African tech and innovation audio show. Now, for those who don't know, Africa Arena is a pan-African ecosystem accelerator whose mission is to help African startups access bigger markets and raise more capital. Each year during our tour, we scour the major capitals of the continent in search of the most game-changing startups in each region, which we then bring to our annual summit in Cape Town of November that year. In each episode, we chat to the most interesting thought leaders, founders, investors, and corporate change makers of our time about their work, impact, and ideas. We unpack their many insights around innovation, growth, the challenges we face, mindset, and of course, investment, because our mission is to accelerate the rate at which our ecosystems are growing throughout this incredible continent of ours called Africa. So with that said, let's get stuck into this week's episode with me, your host, Patrick Craig. In this episode, we're going to be sharing a super interesting panel discussion, which was all around how to raise the amount of investment that comes into Africa. This panel took place at our 2018 summit and was moderated by the mighty James Milne. Now, if you don't know that name, let me give you some quick context. James manages the investment promotion units at Westgrove. Their role is to enhance the ease of doing business or multinationals, corporates, and local businesses through strategic facilitation, unlocking investment opportunities, and are also actually wizards when it comes to needing to remove any city standard red tape that comes with opening up a big business in the area. Now, in the past five years, they have supported the facilitation of more than $1 billion of fixed investment into Cape Town and the Western Cape province of South Africa. James also sits on the board of Silicon Cape, a local nonprofit tech ecosystem initiative that is one of our partners, aimed at enabling opportunities for tech startups in Cape Town and across South Africa and Africa. Westgrow and Silicon Cape, as I mentioned, are both Africa Arena partners, and so there's no man better for the job of moderating the super insightful panel consisting of Kerry Petri, Christophe Viano, Jake Bright, Kathy Goddard, and of course, Viola Llewellyn. James will intro each of them in depth, so I'll leave it up to him. So without further ado, enjoy this Africa Arena episode titled Raising the Amount of Investment into Africa. Uh, thanks very much for the, the kind uh, welcome, Kino. And, and if I can just invite the panel up, what I'll do is slowly uh, give a quick introduction to everyone on the panel. Um, I think this morning could be a bit of a, a, a follow-on masterclass, if you will, um, following up to Jake's, Jake's earlier address. Um, and so without further ado, let, let me just uh, jump jump into the panel um, itself and give you some, some very quick introductions. Um, so I'd like to start off uh, with, with uh, Kerry Petrie, who you would have seen earlier today opening the stage. Um, Kerry's a UCT, BSc, and MBA graduate. She focuses on strategic partnerships for development. She's run successful interventions across rural and urban South Africa in sectors such as education, social justice, and health. Um, and she spent almost the, the entirety of the last year as the general manager for the ecosystem enabler Silicon Cape. So welcome to the panel, Kerry. Thanks, James. Hello, everyone. Um, our next panelist I'd like to speak about is uh, Viola Llewellyn over here, uh, beautifully dressed. Viola, 
if I'd done your entire CV today, I think we would have just covered the panel reading through your CV. <laughs> um, but let me go through this very quickly. Uh, Viola is an influencer for the new African narrative, a leader, a tech and finance innovator, entrepreneur and speaker. Some quick highlights that I've picked off her incredible CV. Um, she's the co-founder and president of Ovamba Solutions, an award-winning pan-African fintech company. She's been selected as a global technology pioneer by the World Economic Forum. She's listed on Innovative Finance's Women in Fintech Power List and was the first female African tech founder to speak at both Slush Helsinki and Slush Tokyo. So it's an honor to have you on the panel today. Thank you. In the middle of the ladies I've just introduced is Kathy Goddard. Kathy uh, is the CEO of Firebird Fund Managers, a distressed asset fund and gender lens investor. She's also a board member of Savca and a board and investor committee member of various investment structures, including Spear Capital, which is a Scandinavian-backed fund which provides growth capital to SMEs across the continent. Kathy has over 20 years of investment, uh, banking, corporate finance, and private equity experience, and was voted in the top 10 power women shaping Africa's private equity market by African Cider. So welcome to the panel, Kathy. And finally, just to the two gentlemen um, on, on either side of the ladies. Uh, first up, Jake. Um, Jake was just speaking as a keynote uh, over at the main stage, so I think a few of you are already acquainted with him. Um, Jake is a writer, award-winning author, and um, he's advised on global business, politics, and technology. He's advised U.S. universities, media outlets, and Silicon Valley actors on Africa's technology sector. I'll leave it there. Um, he's already had an introduction, but welcome, Jake, and it's Thank great you. to have you on the panel. And finally, sitting right next to me is Christophe Villarneau. Christophe is the co-founder and CEO of Metis Consulting. He's got a very long and illustrious entrepreneurial innovation track record. Um, he's currently involved at border advisory level in supporting various startups, which include Powertime, Pay Genius, Energy Intelligence, and Top 12 Wines. And he is also the co-founder of Africa Arena, so a reason that all of us are here today. So, Christophe, welcome to the panel. Thank you. Um, now, ladies and gentlemen, I wanted to kick off the discussion today, um, basically following on from, from Jake's keynote address, and I, I, I picked up a few areas that he touched on, um, and basically I've highlighted three areas that, that he talked about that could be key influences of why Africa is struggling to move from attracting only 1% of total investment and how we can move towards 10%. Um, and I'd really like to open this one to, to the panel, um, so anyone can, can have a comment. I know Jake... Is, is, has already talked, so he's probably ready for a bit of a rest. Um, but Jake, you, you, you picked out three key areas. Um, you talked about data and the lack of data that holds back investment from uh, major institutional investors. You talked about performance. So there still haven't been any unicorns coming out of Africa. We still haven't um, done it well enough in terms of shouting about the successes on the continent. And you also talked about the tough operating environment. So you know, companies that are coming in here are struggling to make their investments work. Um, and so across these three key areas, data, performance, and operating environment, I'd like to open it to the panel to uh, maybe share some of your own experiences um, on the continent and in South Africa. Which of these three do you think are really holding up investment on the continent? Uh, Kathy, perhaps we can start yeah, with you. Okay. I'll give it a go. Um, so, obviously, I look at the world through through the lens of alternative investments, which includes the subcategories, private equity and venture capital. Okay, I mean, there's real estate infrastructure in there as well. 
but we've been seeing a in, in quite different trends going on at the moment, just in terms of just some of the background, in terms of the VC investments versus the private equity investments. Private equity investments actually have declined in terms of the investments we're attracting into Africa, and they've come off highs of 20, in 2012, 2013. They've come right down. We spent a week unpacking this at a private equity conference last week and, and talking to some international investors as to why this is. And one of the biggest themes that did come through there, well, there was two really big themes. They were, number one, access to important data um, and also access to exit data. So people want to know when you exited, how you exited, what your return was. Um, and the other thing is governance, ESG and governance. This is super critical and it's getting a lot of international focus. So I, I think to, to, to the point that Jake made and to the question, I think that access to data is super critical and it, it comes at all levels. So it comes in terms of the underlying investee company needs to start reporting appropriate data upwards to whoever their investor is, so to their GPs, so the GPs can report it up towards the LPs in an appropriate manner. And I just I think that we're not collecting enough data on the metrics they want to see around the impact that they're having in the community, in their in their ecosphere. Um, and I think so. I think there's some simple steps that we can do to to start making data flow better. Um, if I could just make also one more point. I mean, we're here at a VC tech. Uh, conference, can can some of those entrepreneurs please create some platforms to actually start helping this data being shared quicker? Because Africa's growth, I think, needs to be on the back of um, instant data and sharing real-time data and, and, and that information. So that would be my point. Ante. Yeah, I think she's making a really important point. From where we sit, um, Ovamba is a fintech platform, and we're concerned with um, disseminating short-term debt to SMEs. And the problem can be bookended from both sides, both the internal perceptions and the external perceptions. Absolutely correct data, and sometimes data looks very different on, on the continent compared to the outside, but there's also who's looking at the data and why. If you're looking at African startups, our trajectory for growth is sometimes a little slower and circuitous, mm. so the need to constantly look at us from the standpoint of exits can actually skew the perception of whether or not we are succeeding and how quickly we're getting from 1 to 10. And then the external perception that I've experienced yet again as a trade tech platform versus everybody's idea that fintech is about payments is just that. The external per, uh, perceptions of how our market works, what the trends are, where it's going, and how to figure out whether something is successful or not, there are some skewed alignments. There's total misalignment sometimes between what the continent can bear as a sustainable model that is going to really sustain growth sorry to use that word twice, and what VCs actually expect. Mm. Thanks. Um, and, and maybe that leads me into a, a, a sort of sub-theme that I'm quite interested in, what I've been picking up over a few conversations in the last few weeks, um, particularly talking about regional development and integration. Um, and to me, a notable misconception for investors uh, looking at the African continent is the idea of an Africa strategy. So saying, mm. One Africa, this is our plan. Um, and, you know, I, th I think it ties into to the data situation as well. But certainly for me, is, is in, in your mind, do you not think that it's a bad way to look at the Africa approach in terms of saying an Africa strategy? Surely the, the regional approach would be better, and surely backing that with data is going to be a way to enable better investment. And perhaps, Jake, you can start off with a, with a response on, 
on what you, your views of the regional node approach or an all Africa approach? Well, I think anybody that takes that approach is probably a bit misguided and, you know, obviously headed for failure. Um, I haven't been deep, deep into some of the, the decision making and the due diligence of venture capital firms focused on the continent, but I talk to them all the time. And I think some of the better ones, um, I mean, you have to start with an Africa focus, but of course they're tailoring it to what they see in each sector, in each startup, and then also, you know, building that out to the macro environment and what, you know, what kind of, like I said, what kind of operating environment those startups have in those countries and where they're trying to scale. Um, so yeah, I, I think you have to, you have to tailor it. Um, you have to look at different sectors and different markets. And I think if you don't do that, you probably um, won't be successful as an investor here. Um, and maybe just linking to that, and I think, Kerry, this is probably one for you, is, is Jake touched on earlier the, the idea in his keynote of the idea of, of, of startup ecosystems working together to, to develop a voice that speaks to government and speaks to industry about what's taking place in a particular region. Now, you've got some experience here with Silicon Cape, but how do you think regional ecosystem enablers or regional ecosystems could be working better together to develop a voice that's clear to industry and to investors? Yeah, I think it's critical, and it's certainly something Silicon Cape is trying to achieve going forward. Um, we have to start talking to each other. It's, it sounds simple, <laughs> but it's not. Um, we have to lead by example. If we're expecting other stakeholders in, the, in our ecosystems to collaborate and to leverage collective resources, we have to lead by example. Um, the statistic that entrepreneurs are 50% more likely to succeed if they touch um, a successfully scaled entrepreneur, either through job shadowing, mentorship, or um, some other way of, of connecting. We should learn from that experience because we and Silicon Cape anticipates that that's the same for the support organizations, that the newer hubs coming up across the continent could learn from some of the more established hubs and vice versa, that the, the, there's a real strong conversation to have. Um, it's interesting, I was having a conversation yesterday um, with one of the village capital uh, ECOs um, from Uganda, and he was. we were talking about how does he generate um, a collaborative approach when there seems to be some competition when ECOs are fighting for the same funding, um, when government's trying to identify who the players are that they want to partner with, and it's all still quite new and fresh. And we were talking about that, and we have to recognize that this isn't just about asking the support organizations themselves to collaborate. We have to get the variety of stakeholders in the room. ECOs are supported by funding, be it government funding, private funding, or some kind of revenue generation. And those funders have a huge role to play in the way that that ECO functions, the kinds of outcomes that they're trying to achieve, and the value structure that they come in when it comes to collaboration. So if we're not talking to those funders and we're not bringing them into the room, we're expecting too much from the ECOs. Yeah. Thanks. And to me, I mean, obviously, I'm sitting on the side where, where I represent government to a degree. And, and obviously, you'll understand that it's a constant battle within government to understand how that funding is going to be allocated. You know, technology could be the flavor of the month today. Tomorrow, it's something different. Um, and I think just to continue that, that, that line of thinking is, is, do you think there's a way that using data to strengthen the, the support mechanisms, that'll give you the right foot in the door for government. And how do you go about strengthening that data? I know Silicon Cape's looking at it, 
but how, how best do you think other stakeholders across the continent can adopt an approach that allows them to develop data? That, that can take take them to government and, 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 and get funding. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, data is tricky. People don't like reporting. Um, particularly, I think a lot of our emerging ecosystems are more risk averse than some of our global counterparts. Um, so to it feels very exposing. People don't want to say how much they've invested. People don't want to say how much they've lost or gained. Um, and I'm a bit. I'm, a bit of a hippie when it comes to some of this stuff. And I think we have to talk more. I think we have to build trust. And I don't think that's something that happens quickly. And I don't think that that's something that happens by itself. I think you have to be intentional. And I think organizations like Silicon Cape and other entrepreneur support organizations and government agencies like Westgrow have a very strong role to play in creating a supportive cooperative rather than competitive nature. Again, not easy to do. I think networks of networks are critical because those networks become friends to each other and they build that trust. So, for example, the Village Capital Network is a really good example of bringing ESOs together and allowing them to build that personal relationship, which then gets them trusting, which then gets them sharing data because suddenly they realize that it's mutually beneficial for everyone if we have a better understanding of what we're dealing with. Um, we have to somehow get VCs into this conversation and getting them to disclose some of the facts and figures, which they're loath to do. We saw it at the early stage investment summit. Everyone gets very coy and it's all very funny and it's all a bit of a joke because <laughs> no one wants to say how much they're, <laughs> they're investing or releasing. But I think to everyone's point, data is the way we, we flip this conversation. Data is the way we start from a common understanding of what we have so that we can address a common understanding of where we want to go. Can I bring up the dirtiest side of that issue? Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So both of you and yourselves, and I'm sure you'll say some good stuff in a minute, um, make very good points. There are some African governments, I don't think they'd know what data was if it fell on their faces. <laughs> okay. That's, reason, yeah. That's the first thing. When you take examples of having to tell, report, connect, and speak, but you've got a bunch of individuals who are trying to tax bloggers. Mm. If we're going to have one African where united, some of these old diaper-wearing incumbents <laughs> need to stop this nonsense right now yeah. because it doesn't help. They don't understand. It is a very specific challenge. I think it is, it's truly the unfortunate rhino in the room mm. when it comes to all of the goodwill of everybody building an ecosystem for a united, technology-driven African economy uh, trying to achieve the very best that technology has to offer. We need to find a way to scale up some of the more latent areas mm. of our continent's ecosystem. James, can I jump in there? Because I, I actually want to come back and, and ask Viola a question. You know, the rhino in the room really is how does Africa's tech ecosystem deal with government? Yes. And when I first started covering the tech ecosystem years ago, you know, I did a lot around Nigeria, and I got into these conversations about this, and there was this benevolence, this wavering, and in the beginning it was, look, we don't want to deal with government. We want to stay. We don't do extractives. Our best position is not needing anything from them. But then on the flip side, and I talked to Sim Shigaya a lot about this, former CEO of Conga, he's like, but I recognize if my investors can't get from the airport to wherever our tech center is, if corruption's so bad that it's an embarrassment to VCs, if I don't have roads to deliver stuff on, 
um, or electricity, then you know, we do need something from the public sector. So I, I hear this back and forth about, okay, now there's an acceptance that, okay, we need something from government. But at the same time, we don't want government coming in and taking over our tech sector. So I guess the question is like, how does African tech engage government? And I don't have the answers to that. And that's kind of what I threw out there today. So anyways, Can I just I mean, Viola, echo, what, do you, what yeah, do you guys think? Just I don't echo know. another issue from a private equity point of view is how do you externalize your return and how do you create liquidity events when you're exiting, which is the other thing. And, and can you do it in certain economies that don't have foreign currency to allow you to do that? So there are like major, major political impediments and structural issues that we have to deal with. And I love your your approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, straight ahead. I, I believe yeah. in killing a fruit fly with a rocket, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think? You want to know? If I didn't, I really I, I'm, I'm going to say some things and I'll not be maybe not so um, easy to hear, but my, my, view, my view on this is, is, is quite simple from my experience, both as a, as, a, as a, you know, I came from corporate and became an entrepreneur and now I'm an investor uh, in a bit in the middle of everything is that uh, Africa is very different from, from the other large tech ecosystem in a sense that we probably have less than 50 companies that are valued in the multi-million dollars range. That's true. That's peanuts. So you see it as a huge, as a pyramid with this huge base of tens of thousands of small businesses that are trying to um, survive and uh, create their own jobs. We, we're in a context with high unemployment, 20 million young Africans coming to the market every year for the next few decades. Uh, what are we going to do with all these guys, this energy? So uh, uh, let's cut the bullshit. We have a situation where we have tens of thousands of SMMEs, great entrepreneurs. I said in the room earlier, the, the best for me they are because they're adaptive, creative, and they can do a lot with very little means. But they are totally underfunded. Now, I'm not meaning that investors should not look for return, but until government comes with seeding innovation with, you know, like we see in, the, in certain areas, you know, and I think France has a good track record in that, in giving early stage ticket. Uh, here in South Africa, for example, it, it takes six to nine months to get something from the TIA or from uh, the SPY Innovation Fund. And it's, 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 if you look in the bigger scheme of things, it's not a lot. So... Government is not doing really a lot. It's not doing enough in terms of the framework to help the investors come to the party with easy IP regulation and capital outlay when you, when you, when you exit. And private equity is absent from this conversation. Kathy, and you know, I know you're on the board of SAFCA, but there are three, four VCs in South Africa. There's a handful in Nigeria. Um, we have a lot of angels, but uh, you know they are largely investing their money in, in you know private equity, traditional sector. It's not going back to tech. So I think we're not going to see really a, a lot of change until uh, one we get some local angels to start really channeling massively money into funding startups. Uh, and I see that it's starting to happen, and I'm very happy that Tommy Davis. He's going to pitch, I think, tomorrow on that specific topic. Number two, it's very important that large tech companies and, and financial companies like NASPERS are announcing game-changing things. I think NASPERS announcement, launching NASPERS Foundry, 1.4 billion rand in investment, 300 million billion dollars in supporting their own portfolio of startup and, and new uh, tech investment. It's, it's a game-changing thing, you know, because yeah. it's going to happen in South Africa after having done 10 cents and investment in Europe and in the U.S. and other emerging markets. Now they're returning to Africa with a lot of firepower. 
And the third thing maybe is to bring international investors. Uh, so I think AFD's Proparco's announcements, uh, President Macron's 65 million uh, euro announcement to support African tech startup, uh, you know, that shows, that leads the way. And I think we're seeing it immediately because a few weeks ago we had a Yoko announcement, $16 million, one of the largest round. Uh, they, had, they have been involvement from international VCs in the Juma round, you know. That's accelerating the momentum. But, you know, we need a combination of all these things. And I think more needs to be done on the private equity side. More needs to be done on the government side. Mm -hmm. And I think more needs to be done from, you know, international VCs to support, you know. And that means DFI involvement, international support, you know. Turn, rather than sending aid, invest in entrepreneurs, you know. And that's from all angles. The other point... I don't know if this is a chicken or an egg thing, and I'd love to hear your comments on that. On the one hand, you'll have young African entre uh, tech entrepreneurs trying to build um, solutions to problems that they have been told are a problem. And so they will build knowing that a lot of the VC and angel spaces and investors want them to do something that is small and cute that speaks mm. to the last milers, the bottom of the pyramid. So you get, just like you said, a glut of solution builders and tech entrepreneurs trying to build a solution that meets the mandates of the capital the way it's earmarked versus letting the floodgates loose to truly experiment in a way that sees markets in different ways. Now, if you have all of these people at the bottom of the base building cute solutions because VCs really like the idea of helping the woman who needs a $100 loan, I mean, a hundred, uh, $1, whatever the case may be, how do you build a roadway to get them to become from micro to small to medium to large? Because some of those solutions are inherently will stay small. They haven't got the DNA in them to become bigger. If we're all doing our jobs correctly, at some point in a perfect African dream, there'll be no more people that just need $100. So the missing middle mm. is going to become an even bigger problem if we don't start to address. And let's take this, this conference as an example. So, you know, we bring 70 of the top African startups from all over, and they're all quite local, right? They're not pan-African scale-up, you know, they're from Tunisia, from Morocco, from uh, Senegal, and uh, let's see what's going to happen. Is there going to be some deal-making, or are people just spending time at Super Return but not spending time in an event like this, and really with a commitment to uh, do some, some investment? Because I really hope that the investment we are making with the support of the great community we have at this event to bring those guys to pitch here has to turn into investment because if we can't invest in the next layer of the 70 top startups how can we expect that we're going to address the subsequent element create the success stories that's going to get more involvement from all the players you know so that's why we're very hopeful that we're creating platform events such as this to uh, get some money going into the entrepreneurs I'd, li I'd like to respond to both of you very quickly so to your first point i think um to be fair to the South African government, and it has many faults, so don't get me wrong here. I'm not completely praising it, but two things that I think that have really helped stimulate is a Section 12J tax break legislation that we have implemented sure. that has that has tried to get some money into VC, and it's working quite well, and there are a lot of players. Obviously, a lot of people are trying to dodge the scheme, but but for the most part, it works, so there's some, there's, there's some stuff around that. I think to your point... 
Um, I think it's incumbent on the investors in some of the, in, especially in VC space, to actually bring the people with them. So to yes. share skills and share yeah. knowledge and show yes. them what governance means. Yes. So, you know, don't go in and do a DD and say, oh, well, you don't have all the ESG that we need in place. Rather go in with the approach that, look, you haven't got it now. But this is how we see the way forward, and we're going to guide Kerry you through said, that. Isn't it? Yeah. Not shadowing yeah. and touching, and having mm. that yeah. uh, representation example to show what best practices and benchmarks of of improved performance, which hopefully will translate to better mm. um, returns. And the more we're talking to each other, the more we mobilise as a collective to advocate for more government involvement. Mm -hmm. Government's not going to talk to each of us individually; they're mm -hmm. just not interested. Suddenly, there are fifty of us, and we're knocking on the door. We're a little bit more powerful. I'm not saying exactly. it's going to—it's not saying it's going to happen overnight. But we have to start. We have to see advocacy as part of our job description in the startup tech space. Well, it's For like everyone involved, isn't it? Yeah, everyone involved has to be an advocate. We have to be cheerleaders. We have to understand policy, and it's—it's it's not <laughs> entrepreneurs are only going to have their little piece of that, and it's too much to expect them to do that on top of running a business. So it's beholden on the VCs, the entrepreneur support organisations, and the development organisations that government has supposedly put in place to drive these things. Advo advocacy has to be a key pillar of all the work that we do. Well, this has been a particularly easy panel for me yeah. to moderate so far. I feel like all of you could just, just have a conversation. Um, I think in the interest of time, I want to go to a few closing remarks and then open, open to the floor, because I think one of the best things about a panel is really fielding the questions from all of you out on the floor. Um, I think just in closing, you know, we, we've talked about the different elements that need to come together, and I, I, I hate to use the term silver bullet, but is there one particular trigger that you would think about pulling that would really enable um, upliftment, a rapid movement in terms of, of moving you know, the investment flows upwards and, and moving people to working in the right direction? Um, I can certainly say from a governmental perspective, and, and obviously I was in the hot seat there for a little bit, oh, he sorry. hearing what government's doing <laughs> wrong. Um, but certainly from, from my perspective, you know, when, when you look at government, government is, if government's doing the job right, they're there to be an enabler rather than anything else. They're there to create an enabling environment where private sector can thrive. And I think that would be my first push, would be how do you push government towards enabling? Um, maybe matchmaking in the funding space, but we've seen significant disasters happening, in it, particularly in seed funding for government. So do you want government to be in that space? Um, anyway, maybe each of you can just give me a bit of, bit of feedback around a particular trigger you would see uh, that would lever things in the right direction. Well, you know, I actually have a response to that, and it touches on um, things that Viola and Christoph said. It actually touches on, you know, you, you do a presentation, and I hit every point, but there was one point in my final slide that was, like, one of the most important points that I wanted to make that I skipped over. And what I think is going to happen that could trigger some things to create kind of this chain reaction that you're talking about and also create more VC that goes to kind of less profit-oriented or, you know, maybe less, um, this is what's going to make us money faster, uh, startups, is I, I think there's going to be the first round <coughs> of big tech successes are about ready to come. Um, and what I think is going to bring those tech successes, um, I think there's going to be a couple of big IPOs, maybe two to three, but I don't think that's what's going to make the first round of moguls and tech successes, the first round of maybe six or 10. Those things will, will be a big, play a big role. But I think, ex, I think IPOs are gonna be harder for African tech companies to reach because it's just harder to organically grow
companies here to get to big profitability or revenue mm -hmm. status to IPO. So what I think is really going to create this first round of moguls and what is also needed to create those first round of moguls is acquisitions and, to Christoph's point, venture arms. In the acquisition space, I think what's going to create that first round is it's a little hard, harder to talk about disruptive technology in Africa because in some cases, the legacy infrastructure isn't there to disrupt. But you see a lot of startups, especially in fintech, that are finding ways to go into the informal economy and create products and blocks of revenues that big companies like banks and telcos haven't been able to reach. Mm -hmm. So I think those companies are going to start becoming acquired, and you're going to have really rich techies that are going to start to emerge. Um, I think venture funds like Naspers um, and you see Standard Bank are going to start playing that game, and they're going to play a role in creating the first round of success stories. But those are going to be not a lot, so you need all this other stuff to happen. But as the pie grows, and if you can get governments to come along, and you can grow things to 10%, and you get venture funds online and more angel investors online, what you see is you see what happens in Silicon Valley, is there's more money. Moguls start to write checks for stuff that's not so cutthroat and profit-oriented. And you start to see better overall funding for the tech sector. But again, I think it's going to take more venture funding and, and companies stepping up. And to companies that haven't stepped up with venture funds, I guess, like, what are you waiting for? <laughs> because this tech scene, these companies are really, I think some people, just final point, I think some people here in Africa don't take the tech ecosystem seriously, some of the wealthy people and the big companies. These are the big companies of the future. And if, if you're not investing in them, other people are, and you're going to be late. That's because much of the classical educational systems in Africa are valued for being classical, and the idea of the creative elements, even in STEM, are not applied to the future needs of what the nations need to survive into the fourth industrial revolution. You go to any African parent and ask if you want your child to be a rap star, they'll take your head off. But that same parent is going to be very happy when that rap star is now on trace and is terribly popular. The same with technology and development. Because governments don't have a certificate for it or specific schools for it, its value doesn't translate into what you're talking about, which I think, predictively speaking, could mean that there will be a new valuation table for African companies and tech uh, companies that are evergreen especially if their, their value becomes completely matrixed and relatable to the industries that are coming up, the revenue generated, and hopefully there'll be a few tax abatements in the middle of that. But that, that could be what our new future landscape looks like. I have a really quick one. Just Well, a quick one, there's nothing quick. No, none of there's nothing quick. quick. But quickish, maybe? Quicker? Everything's <laughs> yeah. relative? Quick um, <laughs> The... Something we're dealing with here in South Africa at the moment is the immigration question. So if we are trying to make sure that our entrepreneurs have this exposure to successful scaled entrepreneurs, we don't have enough successful scaled entrepreneurs locally in the short to medium term. We have to be importing them so that they can build our local ecosystem. So we're having a discussion at the moment locally around with government because they're making entrepreneurship is not on the critical skills list, and the critical skills list draft that's coming down is even less friendly to the tech space than it was before. So those are some of the sort of quicker 
they're not quick wins that we'd like to see happen. Uh, here, here, absolutely. I completely agree with you that, and particularly bringing in skills and in skilling is absolutely critical for South Africa, and it's something we need to work on. Just in the interest of time, and thank you all for your great insights and contributions. I'm just going to open the floor to some questions. Um, you know, over to you guys. Here we go. Thanks. Okay, my name's Peter Frickman. I'm a, a entrepreneur and um, uh, started a company called DripTech, which was uh, mostly based in India and then was acquired in India. And, um, to, to your point, I think it's a good segue. Um, if we look at, at um, especially uh, a country like India that's had a huge wave of entrepreneurship, a lot of that came from the diaspora mm -hmm. coming back and bringing experience in Silicon Valley and then applying it to their local context, um, it's it's a shortcut, right? How do you import uh, experienced entrepreneurs? Um, can we talk a little bit more about that? What's what's the role of uh, of diaspora coming back? What's the role of of, <laughs> of kind of encouraging experienced entrepreneurs to set up you know, in South Africa and Africa in general? I'm a typical example of that. The diaspora is both. Um, a bit of a cure and a bit of the problem. I was once on the side of the problem. Our perceptions of Africa's problems and the development and opportunities sometimes don't match up with, with reality. And I remember being, I was born in London, living in the United States with my husband. My parents are Cameroonian. I spent four years there during my childhood and I hated it because it was it was what it was, boarding school, et cetera, et cetera. And so you keep on growing up if you don't go home often with this idea that it's still like that. And you continue to export a damaging narrative on the continent. It's not non-Africans that are destroying us. We do this ourselves sometimes. It's a very dangerous, bad, bad thing. I've often given the example that you do not hear Italians complaining, don't come here, there's mafia. <laughs> but we are real quick, and I've done it today even when I was talking about diaper-wearing leadership. Naughty, naughty. Slightly sorry. But anyway, <laughs> there are many from the diaspora who are returning home, and they're having a very wonderfully disruptive effect in that they're coming and bringing these hybrid ideas, hybrid solutions, and really pushing themselves into things like creativity and other outputs, which are usually indicative that there is a middle class seeking to consume something that is um, related to disposable income requirements. So this is a good thing, and we need more of that. And tech sits very firmly in that. So the, the diaspora, we are part of the issue in that we don't really keep lockstep with what's really going on. And we do have the ability to come in and partner responsibly and really help both the economy and the culture to evolve. Okay. Anybody else on the panel want to respond? No? Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Just catch. Just hold on. I'll get at you. I'm over 40. It takes a long time to get to people. Hi, my name is Jens. I'm an entrepreneur, um, and I've done various things. I want to touch on the point if Africa really needs to focus on unicorns. And the reason I'm saying this is if we look at South Africa, we have had, we've got such a large level of unemployment. We've got people traveling from uh, townships a long distance, getting up really, really early in the morning to earn peanuts um, every single day, and, and they go back home. 
And I'm questioning whether we shouldn't be focusing on building up micro-industries, because if we look at all the tech successes and the international tech successes, they're based on a much larger customer base, which South Africa really doesn't have. Um, and whenever we speak about VCs or VC money, it's always about a 10x exit or more. And I'm not certain that that is the right approach for Africa at the moment, is that we, you know, my question is, shouldn't we be focusing on building tech solutions and solutions which actually assist these micro-industries, which are predominantly people who have no education or minimal education, to actually build businesses within the townships, um, craft, etc., all of those type of areas. So I'd like to hear your input on that as well. Yeah, I can maybe take that. My opinion on this is that um, the, the the chase for a unicorn is is a bit of a of a of a uh, useless dream in the sense that we we have a unicorn uh, in in Africa. It's Jumia in Nigeria. So we can say we've had a big success stories. Now, is it helping the problem I've outlined before, which is this pyramid? If you want to progress the entrepreneurs right up to the state status of a unicorn, uh, you have a higher chance if you if you you know grow the numbers statistically. You know, it just mm -hmm. does kind of just makes sense. So, we're not going to be able to do that if we don't invest in our uh, um, you know startup development infrastructure, and that's mostly our incubators and accelerators, which are absolutely critical on this continent, which is quite different from the reality of other continents. Your founders, typically your grassroots founders, they don't come from a high, from a university background. You know, many come from quite a sometimes inf informal environment. They haven't been to, to university sometimes even to school. So you, you need to give them access to capital, access to market, and access to skills. And uh, there's nothing better than doing that through an incubator uh, accelerator sort of program. It's a bit the MBA for African entrepreneurs. But for that to happen, you got to fund them. So for example, we've tried that with the South African government with some success and some lot of pain. Uh, you know, and where, where are the investors? You know, it's very difficult for us to attract investors. However, if you're an investor and you're starting to invest in, in your VC, and I think Knife Capital has demonstrated that quite brilliantly, it, it works quite well to do that alongside an incubator accelerator because it's a way to secure your investment, the milestone, the development, development the follow-up. So, you know, my, my point is that, you know, I think the, the whole unicorn story is an output debate. It will help the success stories to bring international investors, you know, but uh, that's not going to be the primary game-changing element. The primary game-changing element is going to be to invest in that infrastructure for skills, capital and market, access to market development. And that's why, you know, I, I hope that in NASPER's Foundries Plan, there's a lot of money uh, that's going to be allocated to that, uh, investing in uh, incubation acceleration services. And I see that AFD, for example, are part of the AFD 65 million fund is going to go to the ecosystem accelerator. And I hope that Diaspora can contribute to that, you know, and give yes. back to the home countries by investing in that infrastructure because they would be the best to do that. I think home strings does that. Can I just pick up on, on, on that question? I, th I think I'm an impact investor at the end of a business life cycle because I'm business rescue. I think that there's, you can as VC combine impact with your life cycle stage and I think that potentially what the, the investors need to do is have some metrics that include some social metrics around, that are impactful. And I think that would start to change your thinking around just looking for the unicorn and the high RR. Is like, what are the other social dividends? I'll just include that. And 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 the LPs are looking for that now. They're asking you, what are you? What are your social dividends? So important. Yeah, James, just quickly, 
Um, I mean, on that, it, it's a really tough debate. I, I can see some of the points to the chase for unicorns sucking up all the oxygen and the VC in the tech ecosystem. But then on a more kind of triangulated or I guess even octagonated side of it, if that's a word, um, these, <laughs> the, VC, the VC uni the unicorns in some ways, I wouldn't call them loss leaders, but the symbolic nature of them can draw more VC. And once that VC pie grows, then maybe they can usher in things that include more venture capital to these other things that Christoph's talking about. I don't know what the answer is, but that's kind of the two sides of things that I think the, the verdict is still out there on. Okay, I just wanna, you gonna wrap, James? Um, yeah, I think, thanks thanks very much. I, I know there's probably a few more questions out on the floor, but unfortunately, just in the interest of time, we're gonna have to wrap everything up. So just to the panel, Christoph, Viola, Kathy, Kerry, Jake, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so, so much for your time and for your inputs. Um, it's, it's really been enjoyable engaging with you. And I think, you know, I'd invite everyone who's sitting out here to come and chat to the panel as well. You can see there's a lot of real deep insights that are sitting up here today. So thanks again to all of you. And thank you, Jim, for moderating. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope you got a lot of insights and learnings from that episode. As always, please do leave a comment or rate us below. And if you have any further feedback, questions, ideas, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. So you can drop me an email on patrick at africarena.co.za. Till next time, have an inspired week. Cheers. <laughs>